read along if you can. It's only a short letter. Um, it's one of those that you can, you could read just uh, before you go to bed or something like that. It's a great uh, little letter. It's been a real encouragement to us so far. At Christchurch, we've remembered a couple of times that it's written by an elderly guy, and an old John at this point is an older man, and he's looking lovingly at his children. And one of the things we're remembering in particular, and if you just give the book a tertiary read, you'll see the word truth come up over and over again. There's a truth sort of crisis in the church. If you remember back a few weeks, we've had this bunch of people that you could call the cessationists or the exiteers or something like that. There's a bunch of people who've left the church. That's why John's written. They've left, but they've not left and gone, oh, we reject everything that it stands for. It's rubbish. So you kind of know where you are at least. They've, they've left, but they've left and gone, yeah, I think we're kind of still on board. We kind of still see ourselves as Christians, except there are some really quite sinful things that we kind of enjoy and they think this probably benefits in. There are things, you know, we, we also think we can meditate and we're waiting for a really awesome, enlightened response, that kind of thing. We're going to hang on to some sins. Um, we're going to specifically remember the miracles of Jesus. We're a bit less keen on some of the suffering that he endured. These are the bits that we're going to hold on to. And this, this had caused huge confusion. You can imagine it, can't you, if you're still in the church looking at the, the other group down the road thinking, well, what is, what is this that we're doing? How do we know that we've got it right? What's the truth? And I think personally, it's a letter right into us today, like incredibly helpful for us today. I think that we feel, we really feel the pinch of that question as Christians. I mean, I think all of society is feeling that pinch at the moment. There are so many stories out there. Pick your own truth. We've got smartphones that give everybody their own sort of cookie-generated version of the truth. And the truths are all so strong. There's loads of them, and they're all so strong, and they're all so believable, and they're all so presented to you. There's so much truth, mistruth out there. How are we supposed to know uh, what truth is? I, and I think, like I say, I think we feel the pinch of this. And sometimes... So I definitely speak for myself, but I think I'm speaking for us as people that live in modernity, but also as people who are spiritual people. We're looking for, you know, we're looking for something clear, a clear signal that we're on the right tracks. Like in my weaker moments, wouldn't you love it if there was some new document that came out, some new article that came out that just made our faith seem a whole lot more legitimate, just, just by, written by some modern intellectual that everybody followed. Or other than that, Every now and again, and Christians say this often, that, that we'd get a big, like a bolt of lightning in the, from the sky just to affirm it. You're in the truth. You know, we have this storyline. We're desperate to know that we're in the truth. John tells us in this text, in this letter, that we can now, 2,000 years down the line, we can know that we've got it right. We can know that we're in the truth. We can know it. Now, you're going to listen to me, or you're going to think on the text. You're going to hear my explanation. And at first, you're going to think, that's way too wishy-washy of an answer. Then, as we explain what John says, as John makes his argument, you'll go, actually, that's, that's pretty compelling of an answer. And then by the time we've finished, I think by the time John's made his case, you'll feel uncomfortable in your seat. And you won't be thinking it's not compelling enough of an, of an answer. You'll be thinking, oh, I want to know that I've definitely got this. This is such an obvious thing. Um, and John says to us, this is the wishy-washy bit right at the start, 
it's to do with, and he says this over and over again in his letter, it's to do with love. How you feel about love, how you've experienced love, your capacity to do love. He says to us in this text that's going to magically appear on screen in a minute, that a love exists that is so big, so beautiful, so selfless, so perfect, so genuine, that we, that we can know, and when we say no, do you remember that terrible analogy I gave a few weeks back about, it's not like when we know the neighbor down the street who has got the perm, who's called, whatever she's called, it's know as in we really can connect with and trust. We can know that truth and we can experience that love and not just receive it, but it becomes something that is transformative for us. We get it and we're able to give it out in an incredible way. Even though we would self-describe uh, in the 21st century as people who are progressed, we are enlightened people. And I think you can definitely look at a lot of our achievements and go, yeah, we've moved on. There's some good stuff. I enjoy the toaster. I enjoy the smartphone. That's all good. There's definitely other areas that I don't know how much we've progressed in. And the idea of love would definitely be one that I think maybe we've not progressed. Maybe we've even regressed in terms of how we understand it. I think we have quite a blunt, blurry concept of what love is. I'm just going to let that hang over you, see if you're all right with that as a statement. The Greeks, I think, and we're reading into a Greco-Roman worldview. John's writing into that. The Greeks, I think, thought about this. They recognized the importance of getting under the skin of this subject love. They knew that they had to think about it. They knew that it was worth digging around at. They knew that it was better to break it down. So that's what they did. They had a few different categories for love. They had... Um, Maybe I won't say these quite right. They had eros. Basically, I think, nuts and bolts of it, when you like the look of somebody, when, when there's a physical connection. And they recognize that, that is, that's love. That's part of the love umbrella that's in there. But it's, you know, there's a specific bit where you'll do stuff because you fancy somebody, basically, in sort of Yorkshire, northern, blunt speak. There was other ones as well, though. There was ludus, which is when it's connected to stuff you enjoy. I'm enjoying this. I love this. And there's also philia, which is uh, sort of friendship, you know, connection. When there's things in, in common, and that's, there's, something, you know, there's something that's lovely about that. That fosters love, doesn't it? There's another one that they call pragma. This idea of <clears throat> sort of mutuality, of commitment. So you stick with somebody long enough and that sort of builds love. And it's all love. But they broke it up into these different parts. And we don't really do that today. We've got this huge term that we call love to cover loads uh, of different things that we feel and experience as human beings. E Ethan, my son, you know, if he's in the room, I'm sure he's somewhere around. Um, he came in just the other day, and he, Ethan, and he says it without a hint of irony. He was making his ham sandwich, um, I think it was Wednesday morning, and he looked at me dead in the eye and said, I love ham sandwiches, Dad. I love them. And, and I looked at him, back at him, I thought, he's, not, he's, he's saying the truth. He does. He actually loves 
ham sandwiches. And I said to him, without any sense, I was making my porridge at the time, and I'm, we're quite, <laughs> quite simple men, and I looked at my porridge and I said, son, I love my porridge, I love my porridge, which is fine, so that's fine, but then what happens? His darling mother, my beautiful, wonderful wife, walks in through the kitchen and we both turn around and we're both like, hey up love, you alright, love you, all, all that sort of stuff, and that's when you realise this that's the weight of the problem. I can love a ham sandwich and I can love porridge, and yet I'm looking across the room at uh, the woman that gave birth to this boy who brought him into the world, who do anything limitless for him, who's put up with me for 20 years and will continue to put up with me, who we share this huge you know, life together. And it comes under the same umbrella term of love. And then you realize, maybe we should get back to the, what the Greeks were doing. Or then you realize... Or you look at society and you realize the extent to which we can get it wrong with love. We can say love maybe too quickly or we can misunderstand what it means or we can not have enough reverence because it's huge love. It's enormous. When John writes here, he's writing of a specific kind of love. Some of the language, I think at the start of chapter three, in the old, in an older version, the authorized version, it he asked the question, what manner of love is this that we might be called children of God? What kind of love is this? He's talking about a, a specific kind of love. Now, the Greeks had sort of clocked it. They'd drawn up a category for it, agape. They'd seen it. But then when the church was born, when the church embraced this, everybody looked on and went, it's there. Agape love. It doesn't quite fit into any of these other categories of love. We all know that they're love and they're connected with love, but this love, universal, unconditional, transcendent, people were receiving love and then dishing out 20 times the amount of love. It was going against all human logic and everything else, this beautiful thing called agape love. And in the text, John's saying to these people, you know this love. You see that there in verse 16. You know this love. You get it. And when we've talked about know, I have said this before, when we think about this word know in John's, um, in John's letter here, it means so much more than just being aware of. There's this deep interconnection. There's this experiential nature to this word know. Uh, we, we, it's the same word that um, Joe reminded us this week, a few weeks ago that's in the creation accounts when Adam knew Eve and we, we know what they were up to. It's, a, it's, a, it's got huge meaning. It's got more than just being aware of. We can know that love when what? We can get this agape thing, this incredible thing. We can live in light of it when we realize that Jesus came and laid his life down. Not just that we're aware of it, but when we get that that was for us, that was a personal thing. When we look at that and go, that was for me. I, I get that somebody had to be, stand in my place. I get that somebody sacrificed everything for me. When we believe that, then we get the love. And then he goes on to say, and when you've got that, see it in the text, when you've experienced that kind of love, you'll be able to possess this beautiful, big, 
selfless kind of a love. And th- what he does in the next couple of verses is really clever. So when you first read it, it, it can stay a bit conceptual. You receive this love, and then that means that you're going to be willing to lay down your life. You see what it says there in verse 16? You receive this love from Jesus, and if you really get that, then you're willing to lay down your life. And when I read that, and I think about those statements, you can do this thing in your head where you go, oh yeah, I'd be able to do that. It's never going to come up, but I'd be able to do that. And then John writes in a way that doesn't let you off with that train of thought. So it lets you go down that road. He said, that's actually what it is. It's been willing to lay down your life. But let me just play it out in real terms for you, uh, which is what he does in verse 17. He says, if anyone's got, now just let this wash over you. There's a few verses in John that will, should cause us to pass out, really. If anyone has got material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, yet has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in this person? If you, you look at, I had a little look around at a few of the translations of the Bible, and if you look at a more literal translation of the Bible, it says something like, you can't experience this love of God. You can't believe that Jesus died for you. And the language it used is, and shut up your heart to people without stuff. You can't believe that was for you and shut your heart up. And as I read it, I almost wept. You can't do it. It says that God's love opens up the heart. That's what it does. Then it says in verse 18, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. It says this love that you've got, it's not not just a conceptual thing. It's not just because there's stuff in it for you. It's a beautiful, real thing. It's something you can see. It's tangible, meaningful. Told you, didn't I, at the start? I said, you'll think it's wishy-washy at the start, but by the end of it, you'll be thinking, oh, crikey, that's huge. We will know that we're walking in the truth if our hearts are opened up, if we can see somebody down the street and have an open heart um, towards them. Now, the next bit of the text. So hold it, hold it there. Hopefully, you're all like, that's a lot. That's a lot, Ash. The next bit there is for the 99.9% of us who read that and went, oh, man, I don't know if I'm there. I don't know if my heart's moved in that way. For those of us who stand at this point and our hearts pulsating a bit and it's condemning us because we're, we're realizing, oh, my heart's a bit shut, actually, to some things, to some people. Because that's, as I've thought about this in the week, that's kind of what happens, isn't it? With the heart and our capacity to love. We live out our lives and somebody does something horrible to us. And it, we feel it close up a bit to that kind of person or that kind of event. Or we see something that's just horrible. Like we watched the Sarah Everard story. Did you keep your heart open then? Our hearts close up. Or we see you know, the horrors of Afghanistan and we think, we can try and protect ourselves almost and our hearts close up it's just what happens this verse tells us verse 20 if our hearts condemn us so hang on to this and it was in the beautifully by God's provision and grace it was in the first song I think we know that God's we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything what that verse says is no matter how embittered you've become 
whether you know it or not, or whether you're just reflecting on it now. Who God is, what he's done, made particularly obvious in that story of the cross of Jesus, is bigger than any bitterness that we can hang on to. So what it says to us is, if you believe in that story of the cross, what's happening right now is just a, a constant bit of discomfort, a constant wrestling at your heart to open up a little bit more. That's what's going on. How do we know that we're in the truth? How do we know that we're in the truth? It's if our hearts are transformed or they are transforming and being changed. And he says, awesomely, in verse 21 and 22, let me read them out. If our, if our hearts do not condemn us, uh, we've got confidence. We can be confident before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his command and do what pleases him. You see what it's saying there? If that's the story for us, if we've got that wrestle going on, if, we're, if our hearts are being changed, it's not just a ticket to heaven that we're holding on to here. It's not just a, oh, maybe when I snuff it, I can move on to something better. That's not what this verse says. This verse says that you can stand now confident before God. If your heart's been changed like that, that's a wrestling match for you. If God's been at work in that way, John says you've got a person who's going before God and asking him for things. He's in conversation with him confidently, boldly, because he's got assurance. He's working out assurance. Because why? Because he's had a bolt of lightning from the sky or he's read some amazing article. No, because the evidence is in his own heart. And his own heart that condemned him is being pulled open. And he's looking at the world slightly differently. Even though it's a wrestling match, he's looking at the world slightly differently. The question is, at the end of the talk, how do we know if we're in the truth? And the answer's simple, really, and I hope it convicts us. Is your heart opening up, or is it closing up? If your heart's cl closing up, it might not matter how much good stuff you do or how many times you come to church. It might need something else to break that through. But if if by the grace of God, that's a constant wrestling match for you. If you're constantly challenged about the world when you see it, if, you're, if compassion is a wrestling match for you, then what that is is a wonderful work of God's grace and the impact of God's amazing, forgiving love. Don't know how you're getting on with, uh, particularly if you're watching this and, you've, and faith something that you're working out Maybe it's you know, something that's up in the air for you at the moment. Maybe you're thinking, I think I'd still rather have uh, the thesis uh, you know, from the trusted scholar, or maybe I'd rather have a bolt of lightning to convict me of this. If all you've seen of love is, is what happens when you fancy somebody and they fancy you back, if all you've, if all you've experienced of love is 
is the mutuality thing. I love this person because I know that they love me. I know that they're going to make me a cup of tea in the morning. I know that, you know, all that sort of stuff. Good stuff. But if that's all you've experienced of love or all you've seen of love, I can see why you could make a case for dismissing God. I can see where you'd build the argument for that. But at least for me, that's not what I've seen of love. It's not nearly what I've seen of love. What I've seen and experienced of love doesn't seem to have any logical, out, logical patterns. doesn't seem to have any limits that human reason can sort of set above it. It goes beyond and deeper and around. So I've experienced all that stuff where you, you see somebody and you fall in love with them and all that sort of stuff and you realize that love's quite big. And then I've had that moment where somebody puts um, your own flesh and blood in your arms and you're like, crikey. It's huge. And then I've looked on as people that I know have cared for people who are sick and dying. And I've gone, man, I'm not there yet. I don't, but I know that love's bigger than I can even conceptualize. I know that it's huge. It's beyond limits. I've watched on at 9-11 when the firemen, instead of legging it with me or where I would have been, they've run up into the smoke and up the stairs. I've seen surgeons, cleverest, you know, people you're going to come across, not take the easy job in London or wherever, but go into war-torn countries and serve there. Love. If all I knew of love was just that somebody would do something, you know, scratch my back because I scratched theirs, then I'd have a job convincing you of God, but that's not what I've seen of love. And that's not why I've seen Jesus. I see a love in Jesus that goes beyond, bigger than anything you can explain. And it means that my faith is in him. And it means that my oft-closed-up heart uh, can be opened up to.